where we're going with with uh, John chapter one, verse 14 this morning and how we really, really want to interpret it um, within the context of what's already been written for us. And so it tells us, I'm going to read to you out of the New American Standard 2020. It says, and the word became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Father, we thank you for your word. We'd ask, Lord, that you would fill us with your spirit this morning, that you might instruct us that we might see you high and lifted up this morning. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we'd ask that we would see your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. So, as I said, you, we really need to read this within the context of what is written. And... It's, it's another major comparison from verse 1. Verse 1 really sets the foundation of this entire book. Where it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God, and he was God. That word was is the past, it's not past tense, excuse me. That word was is the imperfect tense of the Greek verb to be, which means something that occurs, not occurred, occurs in the past continually something that occurs in the past continually it is a verb form that really hints at eternity and in the beginning was the word occurring being existing continually there was no beginning of the word he was with god again no beginning existing continually and he was god existing continually. And then it tells us in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So what we have here is this, this incredible comparison again in, this, in the short passage that we've been working ourselves through. I think this is either fifth, I think fifth week, something like that, um, that we've been in this passage. And... Um, what we have here is this eternal word who existed with God, who is God, now becomes flesh. Now he becomes flesh and he dwells among us. This word dwelt uh, uh, is interesting to me. We're going to get into that in a minute. But he dwells among us and we saw his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Some of your translations say only unique. It does not have the word Son. The word Son in the New American Standard is actually in italics because it's not in the original Greek. And often it is that there are some who like to uh, attach this idea and they want to use this verse because they misinterpret it. They want to use this verse that the Son was begotten. In other words, that he was born. He existed in... We already covered that in verse 1. He existed into eternity past, always occurring, always being. And, and, and so this begotten is really not the best translation of this word. It really refers to the one and only unique one. 
that who is unique, that who is the one and only. And, and so we have the word who becomes flesh. We have uh, the world word who dwells among us. And we, we have this idea that they saw his glory. Now, once I started reading that, I stopped everything else in my mind. And, and I, I've got so much stuff for you this morning, and I'm going to still try to end on time. So we're going to do verse 14 next week. All right? Because there's, there's just so much here that I can't get it all in in one teaching. And when I, when I looked and I saw this idea of the fact that they beheld his glory, his glory as of the only unique one of the Father, who was full of grace and truth. And again, we're not going to touch that this morning, but we're going to start here next week again, all right? So, um, but, but the idea of the glory of God, and the, the glory of God is something that I know, I, know, I know a lot about, but it's also something that I don't know a thing about. And it's, to me, it's incredibly paradoxical. And so I'm gonna, and I, I read this, and I was, I was telling Marshall and, and Randy, I'm reading j- verse 14, and I'm like, I am in so much trouble because there is so much here to talk about. I'm not even sure where to begin, but, you know, this morning I want to talk about the glory of God. And, and you even use this verse to springboard a little bit. We'll tie this in a little bit more next week with what has already been written by, by the Apostle John. And it, it says here, that we saw his, it's not in the English, it is in the Greek. We saw his, there's a definite article here, the glory. We saw his, the glory, glory. Now that really, that sent me into a tailspin. And I started reading and doing some research because it is possible, I'm going to speculate here. You know my favorite t-shirt, your mileage may vary. But in somatic Hebraic writings, often what you will have when they want to strongly emphasize a point is they will repeat the word. If you read in the Hebrew where it talks about the Holy of Holies in the book of Leviticus, it really is almost a better translation into the English, the Holy Holy. Because it's emphasizing that which is the holiest. We could possibly, and this is a speculation, I want you to kind of think through this and just uh, give it some thought. We beheld the glories of glory. We beheld the most glorious of all glories. I make better sense for you. Okay, good. I love the looks of some of you guys because I'm like, okay, I'm off track. I got to back. Get, got to get get you with me here. We beheld the glories of glory. Is a possible interpretation of this we throw a comma in the english between the two words glory in the greek it's not there and and could it be i'm speculating all right your mileage may vary Acts 17 11 go go search the script yourself figure this one out your own but could it be that paul excuse me i'm still in romans john is using a hebraic form of writing at least here where he's saying, we beheld the glory, glory. We beheld the glorious glory when we beheld him. And, and I, I think that's something to think about because 
as I started, and I got more interested in this word because John uses the word glory. It's the Greek word doxa, spelled D-O-X-A, doxa. And he uses it 17 times in his, excuse me, he uses it 17 times in his gospel here. What's interesting about it, and, and if we have time, I want to get to it this morning. John's sidekick, Peter, who was also with him, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus unveiled his glory to Peter, James, and John. Right? You remember the story? Peter was with John, right? Peter, in his two smaller letters, uses the word glory 16 times. Something happened to those guys on that mountain that changed them forever. Now, remember, we talked a bit about worship and, and even a caution about worship on Wednesday night when we were going through the book of, of Ecclesiastes and, and, and being, you know, not loving God just with passion, but also loving him with, with a sense of, of even temperance. But at the same time, as I mentioned to you on Wednesday, I'm going to say it again to you this morning. Let's not become the chosen frozen. All right? Because, because the reality is, is that God is so far beyond my capacity to understand him. And it's almost as if, as if I go from one stage to another of being able to see his incredible glory of who he is. And I know... Well, I don't know. I suspect that I've only touched the hem of the garment. You know, the, the woman with the issue of blood who said, if I just touch the hem of the garment, if I just reach out and just grab a little portion of who he is, then I'm going to be healed. And, and, I, and I, I, I constantly feel like I'm just at that place where I, I'm, I'm touching the hem of the garment, but how much it is that I need a fresh and a new touch of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life. They beheld his glory. It's a glory of God that was. It is a glory of God that is. It is a glory of God that is to come. I could go into a lot of verses with you on all three of those aspects of his glory. I'm not going to do it this morning. I want you to look that up yourself. But it's this ever-present glory that God has. And, and uh, as I looked up the word, because you know I love definitions, the word doxa, it means the condition of being bright or shining a brightness, a splendor, a radiance, which really that takes me back to verse 4, in him was life and the life was the light of mankind and the light shines on the darkness and the darkness did not grasp it. So he's already going back on what he's already written and he's further adding to it. And the thing is, as I thought through some of this and some people really try to make a mess of this chapter and they, they want to try to point out apparent inconsistencies, which, quite frankly, I don't see. But what I want you to understand, too, in this, is that, that John 1.1 lays it out for us very clearly, and then 
in the rest of this prologue and even the rest of this chapter, John gives us additional information that adds to, does not subtract from our knowledge of who Jesus is. And, and this, this idea of the glory of God. Now, now I thought about the glory of God. If we have time, I want to talk about two mountaintop experiences this, this morning, one from the Old Testament, one from the New. And we're going to have to blaze through them rather quickly to be able to get them both in. Uh, but I, but I, <clears throat> I want you to be aware of it. But this idea of the glory of God, this idea of brightness, this idea of shining, this idea of splendor, this idea of radiance, we, we see this in the book of Exodus chapter 24, verse 17. I'll read it to you. And it's that time where they have, uh, the children of Israel have left Egypt, they've crossed the Red Sea, they have come to Mount Sinai. They have come to Mount Sinai, and it is at Mount Sinai that God constitutes the children of Israel into the nation of Israel. It is out Sinai where he gives the law. It is at Sinai where, where he, he, again, he... <clears throat> He will become their God. They become his people. And in Exodus 24, 17, it says, The sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Now, there's, there's, there's dark smoke on the mountain. There's lightning. There's thundering. There's this, this fire that's consuming but not consuming. And there's this incredible natural phenomena that God has, in a sense, has placed his hand over and is creating for them, demonstrating his glory. And I tell you what, if I were there, I would have been like the children of Israel. I would have said, guess what, Moses? You're going to go up and you're going to go talk to him. This is guy scaring the daylights out of me. And you go talk to him. He'll tell you what to do. We'll do it. Of course, they didn't, right? But there's something about the glory of God when you really began to become face-to-face with it that is, to me anyway, incredibly awestruck. And at times, in, in God's presence, it, 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 it really becomes something that, and this is where I start blowing circus, and this is where I have trouble conveying this to you, but it goes beyond my ability to comprehend, and it goes beyond my ability to communicate to you just the incredible essence of who he is, which is still the hem of the garment. Heaven's going to be a kick, isn't it? Besides going to seminary, again. (laughs) But as I thought about this, I'm going to try to stay a little bit in the chapter. The word became flesh. He became human. He took on an additional nature. That's what the early fathers believed this to be. It wasn't that he just found a human body down there somewhere, popped into it, everything's good. He took on an additional nature. He became flesh. And he tabernacled. The word dwelt would be tabernacled. Again, it's a throwback really to the Old Testament. In the wilderness... God met with his people in the tabernacle. So Jesus, in a sense, in this wilderness time where he is on the earth, he meets with his people in his tabernacle. Now, he dies on the cross, he rises from the dead, he ascends to the Father, who does he send? God the Holy Spirit. 
And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 7, that now we become the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, this to me fascinates me, and I don't have a whole lot other, uh, more of this than what I've, I've already thrown out to you because I'm still trying to make some sense of it myself. Jesus tabernacled with us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us as a temple. We're following the same pattern because after Israel got into the promised land and after they conquered the promised land, what did God instruct them to do? Build a temple, which is what Solomon built. I thought that was fascinating. And it says, we beheld his glory. So John, and it's, notice it's plural. So John and Peter and James and all the rest, they comprehended his glory physically. They comprehended his glory physically. Now, I've heard a pastor say, and I, I tend to agree with this, he said, if Jesus was here in the flesh today, if he walked by in the street, you probably wouldn't even recognize him, except for maybe the crowd that followed him. And that does seem to make some sense. But this idea of the incarnation, that God, the Word, the Word with God, the Word was God, always, never-ending, in eternity past, he comes into his creation more than just, again, more than just assuming a, a, a physical body. And, and, and so the glory that they saw in him was in his physical body. That fascinates me. What was it that they saw in Jesus? I'm going to answer this partially, but I'm, I'm throwing these questions out on purpose because I think they're, they're really things for us to think about. What was it like to be with him? I think of when, when he, he's calling his disciples and he tells the, uh, Peter and the rest, take me out into the deep. Peter's like, well, we've gone fishing and we haven't caught a thing all night, right? And remember the story, he says, well, cast your net over here and then the, the, the net becomes so filled with fish they have to call the other boat to help them get the fish into the boat because the, the nets were starting to break. Do you, think, do you think when they were pulling that net up out of the water that Jesus just goes on with his next sermon? You know what I think he was doing? I think he girded his loins like the rest of them and helped them out and pulled that net up. Could you imagine doing that with the Lord of the universe, the creator of the universe? Now you're pulling up fish with him? He's pulling up your fish with you? What an incredible, glorious event to be able to witness. The healings that he did? To be able to see his glory in the flesh? And yet at the same time, gosh, it's almost over and I'm barely getting started. I'm going to go late today, all right? Just going to warn you, all right? Just a bit, not much. At the same time, the book of Mark. says in Mark chapter 1, or excuse me, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. I'll read it to you quickly. 
I'll just go to verse 2 for time. So now after, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart, from, uh, apart by themselves. So they left the other nine behind. And his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Think about that. So he had on, obviously he must have had on some type of a, a robe, and it, be, it probably white, but it became so white that it, they probably needed Ray-Bans, which they hadn't made those yet. And, 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 and they're witnessing this incredible supernatural expression in the physical body of Jesus where he's, he's just glowing, and then all of a sudden Elijah uh, appears to them with Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. There's so much speculation about what Elijah and Moses were talking about. Elijah represents the prophets, by the way. Moses represents what? The law. What were they talking about? I have no idea. How's that? Let's move on because I'm not going to even bother to speculate on this. I find it fascinating that they were talking, but I think that what they were, their presence were pointing to the fact that the law and the prophets all pointed to the Messiah. And they're talking with Jesus. And then Peter answered Jesus. What's funny is that that's written. Now, Mark, Mark is probably could also be considered the gospel of Peter. All right? Because it's believed that Mark got his information from Peter. All right? Now, I find this fascinating because verse 5 says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, there's nothing in this text that said Jesus even asked Peter a question. I find that to be fascinating. But Peter had this way of talking when he should have been listening. So I don't know. Peter answered and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Notice it says, well, he was being transparent to a degree, at least here he says, because he did not know what to say for they were greatly afraid you know what you ought to do when you don't know what to say maybe not say anything and it says then a cloud the cloud is a representation of what in the old testament is called the shekinah glory the cloud came and overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud saying this is my beloved son hear him Now, I don't know about you, but that would have put me on my face. The Father's speaking here. And suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one anymore but only Jesus with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things they had seen till the Son of Man had risen from the dead. See, he's even given them a hint there. Don't tell anybody until I've risen from the dead. Of course, they didn't understand the cross. But you have to wonder what that experience was like for them and how that changed them in their walk with the Lord and how that informed them. Peter even talks about this. We don't have the time to turn there, but he talks about this in Second Peter where he talks about how we saw his glory on the holy mountain. So they had a supernatural experience 
based on the physicality of Jesus Christ. He's transfigured before them. What struck me about this, this idea of the glory of God, is that we see it also in the Old Testament. One of, one of my favorite stories, we're, we're going to go back to Sinai again. So we're going to go back to Exodus right around verse chapter 33. And I got the scare out of my life just for a moment because it didn't look familiar at all. And I realized I just turned to Numbers 33, and that will not work. Um, Exodus 33. Here we go. The story, and again, I, I, I just touched on it earlier when I talked about the glory of God over Mount Sinai. And, and Moses is up on the mountain. He's there for 40 days. And you know the story. They begin to doubt. The Israelites begin to doubt. They begin to um, to believe that something's happened to Moses, and they want a. They need a new God. They want a new God. That's really what happened. Ever wanted a new God? I'll leave you with that one. How's that? Sometimes you need a new God. Because your image and your understanding of him isn't nearly as complete as it needs to be. But they needed a new God, so what did they do? They went out and had Aaron make them a God. Now, when someone has to make you a God, that should be a red flag right there. Well, you know the story. They, they did, they, they, Aaron makes this golden calf. And I love his explanation to Moses later about it because he says, they gave me the gold and I just threw it in the fire and out came this calf. What do you think, Moses is 14? What's wrong with you? You know, really. God is not happy. And God says to Moses, who is on the mountain, you better get down there and you better deal with these people and you better better deal with them quick. And God causes a judgment to come upon Israel because of their idolatry. 3,000 people are put to death because of their idolatry. And then picking up the story in verse 7 of Exodus 33, it says, Moses took his tent and he pitched it outside the camp. He's so disgusted, I think. I'm not going to... They're your people, God. They're not my people, although he did intercede for them. But he goes and lives outside the camp, far from the camp. And he called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So in other words, when someone needed some type of spiritual advice, someone needed some type of spiritual direction, they would start going outside of the camp. It's setting a precedent. Hebrews talks about how Jesus died outside of the camp, how we are called to live outside of the camp. 
And so they went outside of the camp, and it says, So it was, verse 8, Moses went out to the tabernacle that all the people rose, and each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked to Moses. And all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and the people rose and worshipped each man in his tent. That must have been an incredible, awesome sight to have seen. Now, just like when Jesus was transfigured, you have this cloud which represents the glory of God. It's the Shekinah glory of God. And I believe not only are they seeing this physically, but I believe the Holy Spirit is speaking to them spiritually. And bearing witness to them that what they are seeing is of God, is the glory of God. And, 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 and then verse 11, I love this verse. It says, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Think about that. <laughs> Has God ever spoken to you as his friend? The looks on some of your faces. Do you think he can? he hasn't done it, or if he hasn't done it in a while, perhaps it's because maybe you're not speaking to him as one of your friends. I'll just leave that for you. The Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friends, and he would return to the camp, but uh, his servant Joshua uh, the son of Nun, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people. In other words, bring these people to the promised land, right? But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He's starting to feel a bit insecure here. Yet you have said, I know you by name and have also found grace in my sight. He says, you don't even, haven't even told me who you're going to send with me, yet you've told me that you know me by name and that Moses has found grace in the sight of the Lord. And he says, now therefore I pray if I have found grace in your sight. See, he's using scripture. He's using the word of God to pray back to God because God told him I have found grace in my sight. He's using God's word, and he's praying it back to him. I'll just remind you again what I've told you in the past. The Psalms were the prayer book of the early church. And how, how, how wonderful, how glorious, how it can be that we just simply pray the Psalms back to him. That I found grace in your sight. Show me now your way that I may know you and I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. Notice again, earlier in, in the book, God is saying to Moses, these are your people. And now Moses, and it's, he's starting to have a little bit of an argument here. You ever had an argument with God? If you haven't had an argument with God, you're about due for one. 
All right? I think so. By the way, he wins them. But it's helpful. And he said, God said, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. In other words, God says, I'm going to go with you. Remember the, the, the pillar of fire by night, the cloud by day? All right. And then Moses said to God, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. You're going to live at Sinai forever with all the flashing, the lightning, and the smoke, and the thunder, and the, and, and the fire, and all the scared people who, don't wanna, who are afraid of this? It says, now, how then will it be known that your people and, and I have found grace in your sight except you go with us? Uh, so we shall be separate your people and I, from all the people who are on the face of the earth. He, he's understanding sanctification here. I don't have time to get into this, but that's part of what he's saying here is that we will be marked because the presence of God is with us. We will be marked because we have received and we have witnessed and we have experienced the glory of God in our own midst. We will be marked because we have received the glory of God within the realm of our own soul is what he's really saying here. Verse 17, So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. In other words, he petitioned to the Lord. The Lord said, yes, I'll do what you've asked. So then what does he do? I love this because he takes it a step further. And he says, please show me your glory. Think of that. Please show me your glory. It's like, Lord, you're asking me to do a very incredibly difficult thing because if you think about it, Moses was a 40-year 40 40 babysitter in the wilderness. That's what he did. Lord, you're asking me to do an incredibly difficult thing. I've already asked you to come with us. You've already said you would. See, God backed him into a corner here. I don't know if you realize that or not. It's like, all right. I'm going to need something to carry me through the rough edges of life. I'm going to need something that's going to carry me by dealing with all these whiners and complainers and the devil. No, let me change that. All these lamenters. Remember, there is lament, and that's a biblical term. All right, so we're back. All right, I need to be able to deal with all the negativity. I need to be able to deal with all the lack of faith. I need to be able to deal with the world in 2022. No, I didn't say that. Yes, I did. Show me your glory. And, and, and I'm not going to go into verse or chapter 34 this morning, but I, I would really encourage you to do that. But he says, and I, I love this because... God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness. In other words, the glory of God 
correlates with is directly related to the goodness of God. When Jesus was about to go on the cross, we'll get there in about a year and a half, and John, I think it's 717, talking about now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. Because the glory of God is co-related or correlated or parallel with the goodness of God. And God says, I will make my goodness pass before you and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Remember we talked about the name of the Lord recently? The name of the Lord, the name, this idea of the name, particularly in the Old Testament, but also in the New, this idea of the name refers to the nature of someone. So God says, I'm going to show my goodness to you I'm going to declare my nature to you. And and I will be gracious and have compa- uh, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Uh, but he said, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. It's a very important verse to remember when we read passages in the Old Testament. In the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Who did he see? He saw Jesus. He had a pre-incarnate vision of Jesus. No one can see my face at any time. You cannot see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me, and I shall stand on the rock. And so shall it be that while my glory passes by, my goodness passes by, my declaration of who I am passes by, which you've got to read in chapter 34, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. That's a sermon all in itself. I will place you in the rock. I will place you in that safe place of the rock. Paul tells us that the rock in the Old Testament is whom? Jesus Christ. I will hide you in him. Hide me, Lord, in your holiness, the, 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 uh, the psalmist wrote. And I will put my hand, I will cover you with my hand, and I will pass by. And then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. And seeing that afterglow, that backside of God the Father changed Moses forever. If you remember, he came down the mountain, his face shone. He had to veil his face because of the glory that was going away. Paul tells us now that we with unveiled faces now behold as of the glory of the Lord. These stories fascinate me. The longer I read them, the longer I think about them, the more questions I ask about them. What was it like to be in the cleft of the rock with the incredible mighty hand of God the Father covering you from being utterly destroyed by his presence? And then to pull it away and see this incredible, incredible afterglow of who he is. 
as I said on Wednesday night, I'm going to be down here. We never want to worship worship. We want to worship the one whom we worship. We never want to get so caught up in the worship experience that we lose sight of the one whom we are worshiping. And yet, if God so graces you with an incredible experience as you are worshiping him, simply receive it. In fact, in some regards, I don't think that there, we see it here. We just read it in Exodus 33. Moses asked for it. And he said, show me your glory. Because I'm convinced that I'm convinced, I'm convinced that, that, that the, only, the only path through these very difficult times that we are all walking in is to see the glory of God. Is to focus on the glory of God. Is to pursue the glory of God. To consider his goodness, his faithfulness, his graciousness, his long-suffering, the fact that he is slow to anger and, and, and quick in love. 